Secure multi-party computation is a fascinating field in cryptography, researching how to allow multiple parties to compute secure operations over inputs while keeping those inputs private. This makes multi-party computation a super relevant technology in areas such as code signing, hospital records, and more. But what does it take to bring secure multi-party computation from the blank slate of academia and into the messiness of the real world? Today on Cryptography FM, we're joined by Dr. Yehuda Lindell and Dr. Nigel Smart from Unbound Security to tell us more about their research, their experiences with real-world secure multi-party computation, and more. Yehuda Lindell is the CEO and co-founder of Unbound Security. Yehuda is also a professor of computer science at Barilan University in Israel and a cryptographer with expertise in secure multi-party computation that forms the technological core of Unbound Solutions. He has published over 100 scientific articles and authored one of the most widely used textbooks on modern cryptography. Yehuda served as the chief scientist of Unbound from its inception until February 2019, where he took over the, the role of, as CEO. Hello, Yehuda. Hi, Nadim. Happy to be here. Awesome. Uh, we're also joined by Nigel Smart, who has received a BSc degree from the University of Reading in 1989 and his PhD degree from the University of Kent at Canterbury in 1992. Smart spent three years at Hewlett Packard from 1997 to 2000, and then from 2000 to 2017, he was at the University of Bristol. From 2018, he has been based at the COSIC Group at the Catholique Universität Leuven. I hope I said that correctly. Better known as KU Leuven. Uh, Smart has held a Royal Society Wolfson Merit Award and two ERC advanced grants. He was vice president of the International Association for Cryptologic Research from 2014 to 2016. And in 2016, he was named as a fellow of the IACR. Smart was a co-founder of the startup Identum, which was bought by Trend Micro in 2008. In 2013, he co-founded Unbound Tech, a company deploying products based on multi-party computations. He is also the co-founder of the Real World Cryptography Conference Series, my favorite crypto conference. Um, hello, Nigel. Thank you so much for joining Cryptography FM. Hello, and um, nice to know that Real World Crypto is your favorite conference. Absolutely. Um, all right. So today we're looking at you guys and the research that you've done as part of your startup, Unbound Tech. So as I understand, you have been looking at MPC or multi-party computation. Both of you have experience in that vein. And you're trying to apply multi-party computation towards really, really big companies and seeing what kind of uh, issues that uh, you can solve there. So I think that it's important to um, sort of organize this podcast because we want to talk about the research and we want to talk about what kind of multi-party computation um, work is relevant here. But also, and I think this is equally valuable, we want to look at that technical work and that research work, and maybe for the first time on the show, also related to exactly what kind of problems it can solve in the real world when it comes to really big companies. So um, a lot of papers get published on this stuff. 
um, at Eurocrypt and, and, and other conferences. And it would be interesting to identify the subset of problems that uh, end up uh, that ends up being useful for. And at the same time, talking about, you know, how much can we encompass, for example, in a company wide uh, cryptography policy uh, and, and how um, multi-party computation can help with that. So uh, who wants to start with just a general overview of uh, multi-party computation work that you guys have been working on? Okay, so I'll start with the um, MPC um, kind of stuff. So um, we can assume that people listening to this uh, this podcast kind of understand crypto. So they've, they've heard of multi-party computation, so we don't need to talk about the millionaire's problem and all the other kind of standard stuff that... Um, you would have so the one okay so the the, the founding of what, what's now called unbound security has been rebranded recently to unbound security is um, the idea that well before it when people thought about multi-party computation they thought about multiple parties it's about it seemed to be about bringing people together to unlock the value of data. So this is the traditional examples you see in academic papers of we have two hospitals, they want to share patient information, or we have two you know, uh, companies and they want to share uh, data to do some kind of survey or like the Boston Wage Survey and, and things like this. It's the classic example of multi-party computation. And, well, I'm actually I'm going to give Yehuda the credit for this because he had this idea so we were really trying to find how you could really deploy MPC much more commercially, where the real where MPC would solve real pain points really fast, really quickly. And um, so instead of acting like a marriage counsellor and you're bringing parties together, you're bringing data together, the idea behind Unbound originally was we're going to split data apart. We're going to actually act like a divorce agent. So we're going to act like a divorce agent for, for, for data and we split it apart so you... You, the, the data is separated, but then you can, because it's separated, you could then compute on it exactly like you can with bringing data together in an MPC. So MPC allows us to split data up such that it's no longer in one place. Okay. Now, to carry on to what that's going to be um, relevant for later on in the, in, in, the, in the show is we can't. We don't just. We don't just need to split the data up in a kind of like naive way where. You know, we split it up into three things where uh, you, Nadim, get one part, Yehuda gets one part, I get another part, and we all have to come together to, in some sense, either recover the data or to perform some MPC computation on the data. We could actually split it up in a way which ex- um, supports an access structure, which supports a policy of who is allowed to do what. So we could have, we could split the data up between, you know, Three of us is a bit boring. We could set it up with like with five people, of which two could come together, or maybe a different three could come together. So you could define different access structures, and that's what allows you to do much more controlled usage of key usage, which we'll come up onto later. That's really interesting. So, in general, when you have those companies, uh, there is some sort of pressure to split data apart for security reasons, better resilience against attacks, or maybe legal reasons. Uh, looking, you know, maintaining good appearances in front of uh, GDPR pressure and stuff like that. But that tends to come with practical concerns, where they're not really able to do the same amount of uh, performant uh, data access or, or 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 data operations. So you're trying to apply multi-party computations to 
let companies do that, whether they need to segregate data for security reasons or legal reasons or whatever, uh, resilience reasons for maybe. But because of multi-party computation, they can still do whatever they were doing before. And it's it's really, I guess, le- less of a problem, right? I think also that, that I think the thing that's worth clarifying is that when when Nigel says data, what 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 uh, he's actually saying in in Unbound's context is is key material, and here's something that I think that cryptographers in general it's a problem that we like to ignore. So when we teach cryptography, we say you generate a key and we generate that key, and as long as the key is secret, and then you can encrypt and sign, and everything is fine. The problem is that that as long as the key is kept secret is one of the biggest problems in deploying cryptography in the real world. And we all know that it's actually hard to, you know, do, do crypto properly in terms of people always make mistakes with the API and what mode of encryption should they use. But, but that's all, so, all a solved problem. If you've learned enough, you know how to encrypt and what type of IV you should choose and what lengths. But where do you put the key? How do you stop an attacker getting to the key in, an, in a world where attackers are inside all networks? And when you're, you're in multi-cloud and multi-data center environments, that's a really, really hard problem. And if as cryptographers we ignore that problem, we're actually uh, not really solving the hardest problems for the organizations who want to use our technology. And that's what Unbound is coming to do. So using MPC to protect those keys or at least to provide another method. In, in the past, it was like we, we had a, an exclusive message where it was like, you know, in the past they used HSMs and hardware and now you should throw that away and it only is Unbound. Today's message is an inclusive message. We say that there are different ways of protecting keys. They're relevant for different organizations and in different scenarios. We provide an MPC, which is a software-only way of doing it, which is has a lot of advantages for scalability and virtualization and so on. And we add that to the other existing methods so that organizations have a much more diverse way of protecting the keys they need in their different environments. So uh, a couple of episodes ago, there was another guest, um, Eli Ben Sasson, who was talking about something very unrelated, uh, ZK Starks and, and stuff like that. And one interesting thing that his company did, uh, I believe it was called um, Starkware, was they came up with this general language where, that you could use to define systems that use this particular research. And I'm wondering if there's a similar sort of opportunity here. Is Is the use case sort of mappable enough? Is it is it sort of systemizable enough when it comes to deploying MPC for key management or for data segregation or key segregation at companies that you could come up with a way to sort of specify that via a language? And it could be like a language for defining a key policy or sort of like a, a specification, uh, stuff like that. Is or, or are the are the use cases so incredibly diverse and different that capturing them within such a language would be like, do you see that as something that you would automate in the future? Or do you see it as something where you really have to address it on a case by case basis with every company that you uh, deploy multi-party competition? So, in? so I think it's actually the reverse of Starkware in the sense that Starkware is looking at sort of greenfield scenarios, people doing brand new things and wanting to, wanting to give them expressibility. And that has uh, an interesting set of challenges that you want to solve. And Unbound is the exact opposite end of the spectrum, which is we're looking at a very uh, conservative world steeped in legacy. And we want to be able to solve problems in a modern way, but but in the same way that organizations already know how to work and are used to working. 
So a lot of actually the challenges, I, I remember when I, in 2017, I had uh, a two-party protocol in ECDSA, um, which was like 80 times faster than the previous best. And, and, and Dan Bernstein asked me a question saying, you know, why bother doing ECDSA? Why not just do EDDSA? Schnorr, right? I mean, it's much more MPC friendly. And the answer is because that's what organizations use. And when, when, you, when you factor in the fact that, that people work in a certain way, so there are key management standards and there are cryptographic APIs that we need to support, so PKSS11 and KMIP and OpenSSL and CNG and Java Crypto. Uh, yeah, we have a new RESTful API, which we'd much prefer people to use because it's a much cleaner way of working, but you have to be able to support the way organizations work today. And that actually has a lot of very interesting uh, cryptographic challenges. So when, when you say legacy, I'm, I, I, I imagine like uh, beige boxes running Windows 98. And, no, uh, no, just... no. <laughs> so, so imagine you're in an organization and you're using cryptography. So you're going to be using cryptography to solve some problem. And you're probably not a cryptographer, but you know enough. So you're going to be using standard libraries. Um, you're going to be using, like you're going to say, you're going to be using PKCS 11 interfaces. You're going to use KMIP. You're going to be using um, whatever the crypto service provider is that Microsoft are currently pushing or whatever. So you've got these stat, or you're using the Java cryptographic library. So you have these standard interfaces providing standard algorithms to you, okay? And, and that's what you're used to using. And then someone comes along and says, okay, so, but the way you're storing your key is you're just storing it on hard disk in the clear, or the way you're storing your key is we're storing it in some HSM, or the way you're storing your key is currently you're just putting it on the cloud. And you, what you, and the problem is, we go back to, keeping the key secret is vital. So you want to change the way the key is stored on a company-wide basis, but that guy is not going to be able to understand MPC. He's not going to be able to understand anything. So you've still got to, so be, when we say legacy, what we really mean is it's kind of legacy because it's old, but it's, 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 le it's not real legacy in the sense that this is what people use today to build cryptographic applications, sorry, applications which use cryptography. And so therefore, instead of using some new language, if you had a greenfield site, what you actually have to do is, is utilize the existing methodologies that people are used to, um, to build cryptographic applications. And then, so you, you basically work to the existing API. So the user, the programmer goes, okay, I'm now gonna do an RSA call. I'm going to uh, RSA sign this piece of information. And from their point of view, it's exactly the same as what they used to do. But underneath the hood, what it does is it then goes to an MPC engine to do the RSA signing. So instead of actually going through the normal cryptographic library, if the key is stored in an MPC manner, it just does it seamlessly. So if you've got an organization of, you know, like a, a big, big Fortune 500 company, you know, with tens of thousands of employees, maybe a few thousand, if it's an IT company, there's a few thousand of those building applications, met, uh, you know, software applications, all of which at some point is going to use some cryptography. They don't have to relearn anything. They can just use what they're standard doing. But then beneath the hood, the key is stored in a distributed manner. So this is really MPC cool because, actually, oh, sorry. The, sorry. Uh, the fact that we use MPC is actually becoming less and less interesting in the sense that when you drive a car, you want to know that that car will take you from A to B and it has comfortable seats and that it will go as fast as you want it to go. 
you don't care what's inside the engine. And that's what we're also saying about MPC. MPC is a, te- is a technology that enables us to provide a very strong software solution. The fact that it's running inside MPC or rather, rather than in a smart car or inside MPC rather than an HSM shouldn't really matter to the customer in the end. They just want to be able to do cryptography, sometimes newer cryptography sometimes, but legacy, yeah. Customers do triple DES, so you have to support triple DES in MPC because people still use triple DES, even though God knows why, but there are legacy applications and we don't rewrite them all. Every time you use every time you use a credit card or an ATM machine, you use triple DES. Yeah. So. <laughs> yep. That's that's what I was thinking of actually. I remember every time I pay for groceries or something, I think about triple desks for some reason. <laughs> um, and that's interesting when you think about yeah. the research side of things because a triple DES is much much more expensive than AES to do an MPC. And so you have to make sure that you have yet yeah, a much bigger circuit. I can see you have this look on your face. Why should it be? Because a much bigger circuit. Uh, so it's and then you have to do three deserts. So it's much more expensive. And and you know there are some things which are really easy in MPC like ECDH, but there are things like RSA key generation that are a huge research challenge. And uh, um, interestingly, you would think that okay, so you you know you would write a few basic MPC protocols and you're done. But in fact, all the time there are new research challenges coming up. So how do you back up, for example, how do you back up a key that was generated in MPC while proving that the individual parties actually wrote the correct backup? Because otherwise they could mess it with the backup. So you will now want to do, you want to generate a key in MPC, and now you want to add a zero knowledge proof that I've backed up the correct share that came out of the key generation process. That's novel research, and we do, we're actually doing it all the time in Unbound, which, which makes it very interesting. That does indeed sound very interesting. You know, I, I think something like a more practical, uh, potentially like consumer-facing technology or set of technologies, like what, could you imagine, for example, a MPC-based uh, password manager service where I have to combine usage of my um, smartphone like I want to unlock my passwords on my desktop, right? And I would need to have my smartphone with me. And there would need to be like some sort of established communication there where maybe there's a MPC exchanged or a related like ZK circuit exchange in order to unlock um, or to view my passwords on, on my desktop. Is that is that something that you could sort of see your work generalizing towards or is that a completely different no, that class makes of absolute, That makes full sense. We actually have a similar product not around the password management side but around authentication. So, for example, you can have a key that's shared between a mobile and a server and then when you want to do an operation from your desktop, that second factor, uh, you let you use the phone as a second factor authentication to sign on the transaction. But the key isn't on the mobile because it's vulnerable on the mobile. The key's not on the server because you don't want a server full of keys. And it also makes this, you lose non-repudiation. So you can do that in MPC and then sign on transactions that you'll initiate from the browser via your phone uh, with full key protection. And it's really replacing a smart card. And that would be similar to the sort of thing you could do with the password manager as well. I mean, the passwords themselves are reconstructed, but but the key that protects them, you would want to do an MPC um, so that it's not vulnerable. So going on to that, that, that comes back to the issue of deployability within an organization because the organization, we've got this thing where you have the smart, you have the, the phone and the server got a share of a key. And, you know, you're, the listeners could go, well, why don't you have a bespoke protocol which um, 
which means that the phone and the server have to be used together to give you access to something. But that would require a bespoke new cryptographic protocol, whereas in an organization, the thing that you're authorizing to might already be, let's go use that word again, a legacy system. So the authorization token coming in from this distributed form of authorization has to look like some legacy version that is a non-MPC version. So it's, it's not that, okay, you can come up with a protocol that allows you to authenticate between a phone and a, and a server without actually, you know, but, but both parties have to be involved. That's not the interesting bit. The thing that makes it an MPC thing is that at the end, the token coming out has to look to the legacy system as if there was no MPC involved. And standards are an important part of cryptography in the sense that I mean, as cryptographers, we want people to use cryptography. We want them to use it right, and we want them to use it as much as possible. So if I give you, think about your own enterprise, and I can give you a cool MPC protocol that you can use for authentication, or I can give you something that uses MPC and is FIDO compliant. And then you can connect it to existing things that know how to work with FIDO because it's FIDO compliant. So, of course, I'd rather give you the latter because that's encouraging you to deploy cryptography more easily. It's something which will interface uh, better with existing systems and with more systems. So that's part of our role, which is to really work according to the standards and to help organizations work in a standard way. So this is this is kind of comes back to a lot of you see a lot of academic you know if you write in the paper and you get criticism from the reviewers they go like well why are you doing that like this you could just have a blank piece of paper and you could use this new super duper thing and it would solve your problem instantly and that's okay for academics but in the real world you don't start with a blank piece of paper you have already stuff and you have to add something on the end which is compliant with all the existing stuff so and I think that's something that maybe your listeners need to kind of bear in mind is that actually no one really in the real world starts with a blank piece of paper unless you'll start wearing your your first you're the first to market deploying zero knowledge proofs but um you know it's very rare to be in that situation usually you've got a, a, a huge amount of stuff you have to work with and you don't just have a blank piece of paper to start with the real world, you don't start with a blank piece of paper. I really like that quote, actually. I think, <laughs> I think that applies to Unless a whole you're ton God, of things. Right? You're God, you um, can start with a blank piece of paper in the real world. <laughs> yeah. that, is, that is true, but it's, good. it's kind of hard to be that. You know, it's not, it's not really an option. Yeah. Um, so um, I, I do audits. I, I, I've done a lot of cryptography audits uh, in the past uh, three years. And this is a common thing where people are using Java crypto library or, or some JS crypto library or some whatever, C sharp crypto library and so on. And um, they sometimes they get the entire cryptography very wrong, but sometimes they don't. Sometimes they use the libraries correctly. And so you're very impressed. You're looking at this code. You're like, wow, they're using ASGCM. They're generating nonces in a, nonces in a fresh way. You know, they're using uh, elliptic curve cryptography. Oh, my God. So all, all the fashionable stuff is there. And then you, like, end up with this... Uh, key.txt file <laughs> or something. <laughs> so it kind of undoes the, uh, the whole magic. And, um, but, but the thing is, so my question to you is you're, you're adapting your technology to these stacks that people are using and like to use. Does that mean that in the future I'm going to find people still using Java crypto library or whatever, but somehow also this Java crypto library that they're using 
includes some function such as you know um, Java dot split my key using MPC function. I wouldn't want to see Java dot split my key using MPC. What I would like to see is that when you do generate key, that if you've de- de- defined the Java crypto provider to be, for example, Unbound, then automatically it's just generated and stored somewhere safe for you using MPC. That I think is where we should be going. It should just be abstract to the to the program, and, and to be honest, you know, I understand what you said about the audit, but it's actually a, really a difficult problem. Where do I put that key? How do I protect the key? And if I'm in an enterprise and I have HSMs and they're relevant, I could, I could use that. But that's often very painful and costly, and they're not always available. And in a smaller organization, there aren't a lot of really good options. So, yeah, I would very much like to have uh, it be completely invisible when you generate a key, if, you, if you've defined a provider who knows how to protect that key for you, it all happens. Now, I would like PKSys11 to be thrown out. <laughs> I would like Java Crypto to be thrown out. And I would like everyone to use this really simple REST API that says something like, you know, encrypt, decrypt, and uh, sign, and they don't need to know anything else. But I just don't think that's going to happen uh, in, in my lifetime, at least. <laughs> it, it really it really does seem to be a question of capabilities, right? So g- going back to that quote, like in the real world, you don't start with a blank piece of paper, but the more powerful you are, the closer you get to God, the closer you get to start with a blank piece of paper. And it does seem to be that way in a sense in the field where, you know, Apple, for example, does get to integrate in every product the secure enclave uh, hardware feature, right? And so they get closer to a blank piece of paper, so to speak, in that sense. Um, and so when I... For, like if I were to write a, a piece of software for, for an iPhone, I would be able to use that secure enclave to generate keys and keep them stored there. And, and that's great. And, but um, even Apple, you know, uh, has to deal with this problem where um, so all we all know that when when I download an Apple software update for, for, for a device, uh, it, that software update is checked locally on my device to be signed by the Apple signing key. And I've always really wondered, I don't actually know how they store this key securely such that it is accessible. If, if I were responsible for this key, I think I'd lock it in a vault and drop it in the bottom of the ocean and surround it by sharks with, with lasers attached to their heads and um, other, other stuff of that nature because it sounds like such an important key. So for me, the question with how Apple does this is how are they storing that key such that it's insanely secure and how are they balancing that security with actually being able to access it and actually being able to sign stuff with it that's and a really interesting this, question. So uh, we can't really talk about Apple but because um, we don't know what Apple do. But uh, in a number of organizations, um, if you have a very important key that maybe you only use once a month to do a software sign or something like, like the software update sign or something, you, what you would do is you would the traditional way of doing this would be to store the key within an HSM. And then you'd have an elaborate what's called you know key management ceremony where to actually activate that key. So it might be that you need two people to actually go down to the HSM with physical keys, turn actual turn locks to say, we're now going to sign this thing. So, you know, so the more higher up, the more complex the key, the more elaborate a key ceremony. And a key ceremony could is, can be something that's automated or it can be something that's actually with people. And so you could secure it that way. But that's for keys that are used every so often but actually there's a lot of code signing keys which are used all the time 
which I think Yehuda can 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 talk about with this, you know, where you're using a lot of co-signing a lot of times and you've got a, a problem there. I just back up one moment because, you know, what, what you were saying, Nadim, is not a theoretical problem, right? I mean, in 2019, ASUS had a, uh, there was malicious firmware that was distributed and it was signed with a legitimate co-signing key. In the SolarWinds Orion the back door was signed with the valid key. Adobe had a code signing breach, uh, you know, where where malicious code was signed with their valid signing key, and and these things actually really do happen, and they're very dangerous, of course, because that's what protects us when we download any app or update our software to know that we're actually installing something that's valid and not and not malware, and the the challenge is that. Legacy key protection mechanisms are about preventing key theft. I'm going to put it in a box and make sure no one can take it out. But if I can get to the client that's authorized to use the key, then I can use the key in exactly the same way. So how can I solve this problem? MPC is actually perfectly set up for that because MPC enables you to define quorum approval structures like three out of five of this team and two out of four of that team need to approve the operation. And you might think that, you know, how, how will that actually work in practice? Depends very much what exactly we want to do. So in some cases, those, those approvers could be humans that are approving from their mobile or their desktop using a share of a key inside an MPC protocol. It can also be a server who has to do certain checks. Like, yes, I test, I test the fact that I ran the static analysis on that code. And therefore, uh, yes, I will, um, I will sign that. Or I test the fact that I ran this uh, certain scan on the code and therefore I approve that to be signed. But unlike the sort of old way of doing things where I would just approve and then someone would get, gather that list of appro- approvals and then just sign, here all those approvals are actually cryptographically enforced because they have shares of a key that are part of the MPC signing process. And using that in code signing is just one example, but think about other transaction signing on financial transactions. You can set up these maker checker workflows where somebody can make the transaction and define what needs to be done, and someone else has to approve it, but it, you can't make a mistake because it's cryptographically enforced. And these are things that MPC can able you to do, which really takes the level of key protection to, to you know, somewhere much more advanced than and re- can reduce a lot of risk inside enterprises. And the, the, so the, and the key point here is, is that if you do it with MPC, the authorization is cryptographically bound in with the key usage. Whereas if you did it in a traditional way where you say, well, we've got these different ways of approving and each one gives a digital signature and then I've got another computer which checks all the digital signatures and only if those digital signatures are correct will then issue the correct signature, that checking computer is now a single point of failure because that's the thing you would attack because that's the thing that can bypass all your complex authorization. So it's the fact that MPC allows you to cryptographically bind the authorization structure with the key usage without creating that single point of failure is, the, is in some sense, the, the, the great security benefit. Cryptographically bound the key usage with, okay. So that's, that's a very interesting concept. If we take stuff like that, um, the sort of like 
removing the centralized checking agent from from the equation and having the checking mechanism bound itself with with the way that the key is actually used what does that mean regarding the ability to permeate this sort of technology within a company as a whole like i, I can apply this to software updates okay and this is extremely maybe the most important uh, use case in, in many companies um is there is there anything else like w- w- when we look at the uh, entire stack from from the user uh, accessing a piece of software or using a product up until the top? Um, what are like what can we can, if if we're able to actually bring together all of these different use cases? Can we formalize them as part of yeah, a single we can. policy? Can we be like this is this is the one thing and we can apply that across the entire thing? And then it it becomes the ultimate point of reference for for everything, and uh, whenever any key that's part of this policy is used, it it, it gets checked by by itself. Uh, how, how is that something that you guys have done? How does it look when you apply uh, research into such a huge unified sort of framework? And then especially with the legacy context of those companies that are using. So, the so it's things? really just a matter of crystallizing the problem into something which is sort of very very focused and simple, which is enable policies to be defined and verified by everyone who needs to participate in the process. So uh, I'll give you an example. Um, financial organizations have uh, checks they have to do their, for, uh, again, you know, AML, anti-money laundering, and KYC, know your customer. And you, uh, you can have different checks that relate to uh, you know, the risk in a certain transaction. All, all of those elements can actually be parties that provide um, either a part of the actual signing process or you can do something hybrid where, you know, because sometimes you don't have control, maybe it's an external AML service, and they'll, they'll just provide a digital signature. But I can use MPC to divide up the key amongst four or five different players and ensure that each of those five verify all of those signatures coming from external sources. And now instead of a single point of failure that can be bypassed, an attacker would have to breach all five of those. And that enables me to build very, very flexible policies that involve external parties who I don't have any control over. And on top of that, I can layer in the human approval approvers who would actually be very much an inherent part of the MPC process. And then you define a firewall, a firewall of rules, right? So you can just really define what we're calling now a cryptography firewall, which is when you get a request to do an operation, you can define that certain rules need to be met so that if somebody is setting up a new account at 3 a.m., a new account for a new employee at 3 a.m. on Saturday night, that's something which you're going to reject. And it's very simple conceptually, but it hasn't been done in the past. So it really, if you look at this, um, it's code signing. If you look at the uh, uh, financial approval, they're all applications of workflow. There's a workflow before you engage in a cryptographic operation. So at the end, there's some cryptographic operation happens. The code, code is signed, the transaction is signed or whatever. But there's some workflow that has to happen before that event. And what we do is that we can now use an MPC, we can actually secure that entire workflow mechanism um, in a, in a, using MPC. So is, is workflow policy definition also constrained by the legacy systems that you guys are bound to use? Or because I'm, I'm, when, I, when, when we talked about legacy earlier, we talked about stuff like 
uh, Java crypto libraries and stuff like that. But when you're defining a policy, is that also do you also have to work with that, or is that does that unfortunately not? Where oh, okay. uh, actually we don't have oh, that okay, problem cool. because Perfect. what happens is that the legacy relates to how the application talks to the you know how the application consumes cryptography. I can when I set up a key, I can define a policy around that key. Already now, I define policies in terms of what I'm allowed to do with that key. That key can be used for signing and not decryption, for example. I can now add a new layer of policy, which is what usage limitations are there around that key. I can add a rate limiting. I can add, you know, at different times of the day or night, how much is it allowed to be used and how much. And I can add checks. And that can all happen on the administration side and completely independent of the application that just is carrying out a standard PKCS11 call in the same way it did 25 years ago. But now under the hood, all this new uh, uh, crypto is happening that enables to verify that policy, ensure there's no single point of failure, and carry out the operation without the key being in any any single place, completely invisible to the application. And that's the really cool part about it, the fact that nobody knows about it. So is that something that you can formalize into like this language or sort of like spec? Because I, I'm, I'm, I, keep, I keep coming back to this because this is what I work in, right? Like formal methods, uh, for like uh, formal verification, uh, protocol specification. I'm really excited to know whether in the future you might look at, for example, uh, coming up with a, with a way where like I, 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 there's this sort of compiler where I, where I feed it a, a spec for, for how to have every key, like I define every key, I define how every key is split up, I define how every key checks itself for correct usage and so on, and then have that somehow like compile into, um, what, what would it even compile into? I mean, a policy, a, a set of rules, a, a PDF telling people what to do? I mean, what, what, what would, what would well, be the I, I asked this question actually uh, not too long ago, and the answer that I got was, no, it's just a list of rules like in a firewall. I said, is that enough? And actually I was told is that actually that's the best thing because that's what administrators are used to using. It, it can be defined very simply. Now, I know that in the firewall world, things got so complicated that there are such tools that help you define the rules properly because you can have firewalls with tens of thousands of rules. Um, I think that when we're defining cryptography firewalls, we're in the very, 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 very early days. So you'll have like three or four rules. If we get to the point where there are hundreds of rules around how a key can be used, then I think absolutely there'll be uh, a lot of interest in how do we do that in in a comprehensive and formal way. Okay. Well, so, so where do you guys see this going? You know, like, uh, so you've had this amazing experience. Well, with Java crypto libraries, maybe, maybe less, less amazing. And, but, but in general, in a very cool experience with, um, with, uh, MPC crypto and deploying that to companies. Um, what are, well, I guess, I guess as a, as a sort of like, uh, uh, f- final part of the episode question, um, what are the lessons? What are the most important lessons that you can take from your experience applying these new research techniques to companies? What can you take from that? What can you bring back to academia? What what sort of lessons would you like to impart on on academics when it comes to um, the impact that their work can have on the real world in general? I think there's um, a couple of issues. So first is we, we start at the beginning is you start your cryptographic paper and you generate a key and you store it securely. Okay, that is the hardest thing in some sense, because if you think of a huge organization with a huge amount of cryptography, so just take a not just a standard Fortune 500 company or whatever, they're going to have 
um, they're going to have keys to do with their, uh, their websites. They're going to have keys that are to do, um, that are, uh, in on-premise HSMs. They're going to have keys that are to do with cloud service provider. And they don't just have one cloud service provider. They can have different cloud service providers. So in each of those cloud service providers stores its keys in different ways. So, and they've also got those idiots who have the key.txt file in there as well. So you've got people, so within that big organization, you've got the key.txt file, you've got the on-prem HSMs, you've got the different ways of storing it in the cloud. You've got uh, the different uh, legacy ways of doing things with open, how OpenSSL stores keys. You've got uh, key managers, etc. So that one little sentence in an academic paper, it generate your key and store it securely, is hugely complex. And actually, so this is one thing that Unbound Security is now working on, is to really simplify that for organizations. But from, from what the academics need to take back is, is really, that's a really complex thing. And you should really think about this. You know, how are you going to, what are the best ways of managing that complexity? It's not just in your crypto, crypto paper, you just generate a key and it seems to be the same key because it's always got the same letter throughout the paper. But in an organization, there are millions of those things all stored in different places and how they all interact and how they're going to be managed is a really, really big, big, big problem for organizations. Yeah, but is there is there space in a regular paper for me to discuss this problem? Because these papers, like they make this assumption because they end up, you know, saying generate your key so that we can then build, you know, yeah. this cool Some protocol. This, yeah, right. And so how, how do we convince academics to take this more seriously? And, and I, I wonder just what, what format would that paper take? Like, is there, is there any sort of regular, I've, I've never seen a paper that was just like a published paper regarding the problem of. Well, yeah, uh, I mean, there are some, know. I mean, if you go to the security community uh, uh, conferences, there are, there are a few, but I think the point is, is that, in, in, we, we like bright, shiny new crypto, but everything we've talked about today is, is not necessarily about bright, shiny new crypto. It's about how you manage crypto. It's about how you work with systems. You know, this example of you want to you want to thresholdize ECDSA, but you know, so the, the academic cryptographer comes back going, "But that's stupid. Why don't you use Schnorr?" But the point is, is that Schnorr's not used in the real world. So we've got to have more academic work academics talking to the real world so they understand what are the problems people face and if it's a real world problem which is about using the thresholdizing ecdsa and it's ecdsa because that's what's used in the real world that's interesting academic crypto as well it's not it shouldn't be dismissed because it's not a nice shiny blank blank piece of paper that you've started with hard problems can come from interacting with the real world uh, I'll add to that that I think that uh, so academic research can go in many different directions. And I actually am a very strong believer that, especially in our field, theoretical research has proved itself as being extremely beneficial. Uh, there needs to be some humility about understanding what problems people really want to solve. So, you know, when someone comes along and says, as like, like Nigel said, I, I, I want to do A because of the way people work, telling them, no, people should work in a different way in the real world is never the right answer. But having said that, I think that we should understand that in academia, it's not necessarily our role to solve the problem that the com company X has today. What our role is actually is to push the science forward, to come up with the techniques so that when someone comes and looks at, at, at a problem in industry that they want to solve, they have this 
really powerful and comprehensive toolbox that they can work with. And that, that's where I think that uh, our contribution really is mainly. Because I can tell you that I, you know, I thought about MPC for many years in different applications and different problems. We get it wrong all the time. It's the people in industry who actually have the problem and come and say, yes, I need to solve this. And then you realize, oh, that's obvious. But I, I didn't know beforehand because I didn't have the same problem that they had. And uh, so I think academia should continue pushing the science forward with a bit more humility in terms of what's of interest and that the way people work in the real world is, is, part of, is part of reality and we actually need to support it. But also the understanding that we don't have to necessarily solve all problems and when I go out and I do work for industry, then I'll, I'll be able to you know, take from that vast amount of scientific knowledge and apply it. The real question is, I mean... Is it, is, is it harder to solve the uh, key generation problem or is it harder to have humility in academia? This is what I, this is what I want to know. I mean, you're, 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 you're supplementing one difficult problem with another. You're not, you're not moving in the right direction. Is possibility to solve um, humility in academia? Just joking. <laughs> yes, it's, 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 I wouldn't be surprised. It's, 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 it's NP, NP hard, yes. We could, we could base some cryptography on a new, new encryption scheme based on humility in academia. This is true. This is true. And that's it. We've solved it. You know, like uh, post-quantum crypto doesn't need to happen anymore. Um, thank you both, Yehuda and Nigel, for, for this cool episode. Um, anything to say before we sign off? Uh, no, just thank you for having us on. It's always always a delight to listen to your, um, your, your podcast. Likewise. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here. Okay. Maybe next time it'll be you who's on the podcast. If you have any cool things to talk about, uh, whether they be new cryptography research, new cryptography software, new cryptography methods or companies or startups, come on Cryptography FM and talk about it. There's really, you know, no nothing to lose. It's just, it's just me on, on a show and we talk about cool things and then people listen to it. So come on the show. But whether you're a listener or an active participant, I hope to see you again next time on Cryptography FM. <laughs>